we are beginning our journey to the end of Genesis. So we've had a long ride. We're in chapter 37, so if you're following along in an app or on the screen, you can do that. I'm in chapter 37 today. And um, in the next few weeks, we're really going to just close out Genesis. And instead of closing out in kind of like a type way, you know, like where balloon just kind of fizzles out, the end of Genesis is incredible. It is absolutely, completely incredible. Um, it's, it's one story. And we're going to break it up into multiple pieces because it's so long narratively. But as we go through this story, I'm going to spoil it on purpose over and over and over again. Okay? So just kind of get used to that idea because we're going to spoil it as we go. I'm going to give you the end right at the beginning. Because it is so powerful to see this story through the lens of the ending. It's so powerful that I can't help myself. This is a story where we don't see God doing anything. Scandalous, right? This is a story where God does not speak in the story. He does not act. He does not intervene. Lock the doors. We see him do nothing in this story. Or does he do everything, right? That's what I'm saying. Like, he either does, we don't see him actually speak. We don't see him actually intervene in any way that we can actually see. So we don't see him actually do anything, or, or is he really doing the whole thing? What about you? As we begin this time in God's word and as we begin Joseph's story, what about you? Has God done everything in your story to bring you to this moment? Or has he done nothing to bring you to this moment? As you look back and as you take a step back and look at the grand scheme, and maybe you answer this question easily, but maybe the answers aren't so easy when you consider times of suffering and times of pain. In this story, God is nowhere visible, but he is everywhere present. And that's gonna be a powerful thing as we move through God's word together. So why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes. Take a breath and then another. Those breaths where you feel your belly in your breath. The big ones. Let's get quiet for a second. I want you to think about for just a minute. Where is God present in your story? Maybe the next question is a better one for our time here today. Where does God seem absent from your story? Where if you're reading it, where it, it doesn't look like he's there. It doesn't look like he's intervening or present or speaking. Be honest, take a couple minutes. Where do you feel like God is absent in your story?
This is the real work, so stay focused here for the last question. I want you to do something a little different this morning. I want you to take just a minute and to dream for a second. Dream with God. And just maybe be bold enough to pray this. God, what are your dreams for my life? I want you to think about your work, about your relationships. What are the dreams that God is giving you for your life? God, I want to pray for all my friends here that you would give us a dream, your dream for our lives. Now that we'd be able to look at how you've brought us so far and what you've done to bring us to this moment, to this relationship, to this job, to this school district, to this neighborhood, to this city. God, would you give us the dream that you have for our life? the people we're meant to love, the habits we're meant to have, the kindness we're supposed to share. And God, I pray that, that that dream would just take root in the life of this people that listen to this message. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name. It's for his dream, his kingdom, for the sake of that dream that we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Genesis 37, as I said, and this is going to move pretty quickly, and it's a story that's as dynamic as any in the Bible. Look at verse 1. It says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed in the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Do you remember the land of promise? The land that had infected the dreams of this family of God. That is where Jacob is staying, in the land of promise, in the land of God's dream for his family. That's going to be really, really, really important by the end of the story. Really important. The story begins in the home of the people of God. God had made a family and he promises them this home. And that home is a statement about us too. A statement about all of our homes. Because the promised land isn't just a land with geographical boundaries. The promised land is home. Their home isn't in the Middle East, neither is ours. Your home isn't necessarily in Siouxland. Our home is wherever God is. Or rather, wherever we are with God because he's everywhere, right? We sing that song where we say that, we, that God is our home. This is what he says to his family. That there is a home, there is a place for us in the story of God, in the dream of God. This is the story of Jacob's family. Look at, continuing in verse 2. Joseph, a young man of 17 was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, first off, we need to know that Joseph is not old. Okay, I don't know about you, but when I come to the Bible, it's so heavy and so important in my life that I have this natural thing that everyone's just like 85 years old and knows everything. You know, literally, I think that when I'm reading the Bible. <laughs> Joseph, we're told, is 17. He's not an old man. He's like barely a man. 
He's a young man. And that's going to be important for the story. And here at the beginning of our tale, we have a conflict in a family. Does conflict between brothers ring any bells for us who have been working through Genesis? Like alarm bells as loudly as possible. Conflict between brothers is nothing new. Is this the first time we've seen this? Absolutely not. Cain and Abel, that one ended in a murder. Isaac and Esau, that one ended in blessing, robbing, and all that kind of stuff, like in, and pretending to be someone you're not. Now Joseph and his brothers. Our story begins in conflict, familial, sibling, conflict. This is not just a rivalry. When this verse, look at what it says. A young man of 17 was tending the flocks with his brothers. Look at his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. Are they sons of his mother? No. They're, they're sons of who? His father's wives. And who are Zil, Zilpah and Bilhah? They're, so just to recap, Jacob had married a sister. And that's a complicated story for another day. We can look back and hear that story. It's a great one. He marries his sister, but he really wanted to marry the other one. So he ends up marrying both of them. Neither of them are these two. Because what's, what happens is he has a baby with the one he doesn't love. And it sparks this fertility race, like an arms race, only with babies. That's exactly what happens in their story. So when Joseph comes and he gives a bad report about the sons of his father's wives, this is loaded with that family gunk. I recently had to take apart a sink. Everyone's like, if you've done it, you're like, mm-hmm, I know it. Have you ever taken apart a P-trap and seen, like, hell is real. It really is real. If you've been inside the business end of a P-trap, okay? That's real. Like, the junk that can build up in a family over generations and decades, that's the kind of junk that's built up here. That's the kind of drama. That's the kind of darkness. When we read in the text that it's not just that Joseph has a bad report about brothers. You know how brothers like pick on each other? This is not that. This is a deep-seated conflict. He brings a bad report about the sons of the fertility race. One of the central questions in Genesis and in our lives is what will happen with this family? Is this family going to make it? We don't know if we're reading this for the first time. Is your family going to make it? Is mine? Look at verse 3. It gets deeper. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. Now to Jacob, Joseph was proof that his body had kept up with the promise. Proof that his old age meant even more kids and more sons of the fertility race. More and more and more. And he loved Joseph. So much so that he gives him this robe, this rich robe. You know, Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat. The robe of many colors. No one knows what it looked like. But we know that it was a robe fit for a king. And I have a question. Why hasn't Jacob figured this out by now? Because do you remember who Jacob was? Jacob was a brother, and a brother whose father favored the other son. And he knows what that did in his life. It made a mess of his identity, so much so that at his worst, 
I mean, he's dressing up like his brother to steal his blessing and his birthright from him. That's the kind of gunk that's in his past. And by the way, it doesn't end there. That was their father, Isaac. Their father, Isaac, was a favored son. So we have two, three generations of family junk that has been sown and that is growing up into preference. I mean, his father Isaac grew up in a home where one kid was had with a woman who wasn't his mom at his mother's suggestion. And then that kid is exiled by his father. That's that's his father's story. That's Jacob's father's story. And again, remember how Jacob got all these sons. Leah wasn't enough and he had to have Rachel. It was because he preferred one wife to another and participated willingly in a fertility race for his affection. This is the soil that this family grew up in. Maybe I was asking the wrong question. I asked the question, how have they not figured this out by now? Maybe the real question is, how in the world could they have figured this out growing up in this soil? For us, for you, here, now, we have both of these questions raging in us, right? Don't you look back at your life and you think, Man, how have I not figured this out by now? And then in the next breath, you look back at your life and you say, how in the world could I have figured this out by now? The questions rage and we read on. Look at verse four. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Shocking. Shocking. We've seen this over and over and over. The problem behind the problem behind the problem. What is the problem? The problem is that these brothers have a dad who screwed up. Like every dad in the history of dadness has screwed up. Like everyone. There are no exceptions. And here's the thing. If you're a dad who hasn't screwed up, you've really screwed up. And if you wonder about that, talk to me afterwards. Like, but here's the thing. Who's your daddy? Like, you can have a dad... But who's our father? The problem for these sons is that they think that Jacob's their father. And that their whole significance and their whole worth and their whole value is wrapped up in a guy who favors one son over the other. But what if they knew God as their father? As their perfect parent? What if they could approach God and find all the significance that they could ever need? All the love that they could ever want. Forgiveness for all the mistakes of their dad and every dad. Their moms and every mom. What if they could see differently? Would there be this hate if they knew who their dad was? Would there be this pain and this conflict if they knew? Abraham isn't our father. Joseph wasn't Jesus' father. Who is our father's 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 father? Our mother's 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 mother. Go back and back and back. And what is Genesis about? It's about beginnings. And in the beginning, God created man and woman. And he said, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He was our father. But we've lost the plot. And this is what happens. 
Do you think your father willed you into existence, your earthly father? Do you think? Some of us are closer to when we had kids than others. Did you make it happen? <laughs> we come from God. The brothers don't see this. Instead, they are locked in a losing war for their dad's affection, a war that's given way to bitterness. Look at verse five. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. They hated him before, they hate him more now. Joseph had a dream. And dreams don't always mean things. I should say they always mean something, but that we don't always know how they correspond to reality. But this dream means everything in this story. It will set up the conflict between the dream and those who want to kill the dream. He tells his brothers, which is a bad idea, to tell your brothers this kind of dream. Remember that he's not just any brother, but where does he fall in line? Joseph is the second youngest brother. And in this time and in this place, your firstborn son was everything. Your secondborn son was, eh, okay. And on down the line, until you get to the second youngest, the younger brother, what happens in this story of God with the younger brother? What will happen with this younger brother? Look at verse 6. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. Picture a 17-year-old, right? Coming up to a bunch of like 20, early 30-year-olds. A 17-year-old doing this. And he comes up to his brothers and he says, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright. While your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Weird. Pretty cool. Like a cool dream, right? Right? No. Look at verse 8. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? Like triggered, you know? Like everything in this family is triggered by this dream. Did, here's a question. Did Joseph give an interpretation of the dream? He doesn't, Right? Does Joseph say that he knows? Like, who, who jumps to conclusions here? Who thinks that they know what he's saying when maybe they don't? Their hatred is kindled. The dream and the dreamer come under intense scrutiny and fear and judgment. This is where we spoil the story. Does their interpretation of the dream come true? Like, if you're familiar to this story, does Joseph actually rule over his brothers at the end? No. He saves his brothers at the end of the story. But what happens at the end of the story is an exact interpretation of this dream. Do you notice how you can have a dream and you can think you know, but you don't know? And if you jump to conclusions... And, and that conclusion is informed by jealousy and hatred, you're going to jump to the wrong conclusion. And you're going to want to hate the dream and the dreamer. They think that the younger brother's dream coming true means that they are destroyed and subservient to him. But what will happen when the younger brother's dream comes true? It's going to save everything. But they can't see it. Can we? 
Look at verse 9. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen. Notice both times he says, listen. You can, I mean, you can hear this, right? Plucky 17-year-old. Hey, guys, listen. Check it out. I got dreams. You want to hear it? Listen, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars, important number. How many brothers are there? 12. 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, interpreting this is not that hard, right? It's not that hard, but check it out how it's interpreted. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and the dream and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? So who interprets the dream? Dad. And how does he interpret himself? The son. (laughs) The son. Can you imagine? I am the son. Son, check it out. Who is the moon? Your mother. Which mother? That's a good question. <laughs> which one? Could be one of four of these brothers. Like, which one are we talking about here? But it's your mother and I and then your brothers. Listen to how his family, who is accusing Joseph of petulant arrogance, interprets his dreams. Jacob is the sun. The mother is the moon. The brother are the stars. Typically, Joseph is seen as arrogant and brash in the story. And he's young. But his family, meanwhile, interprets themselves as the celestial bodies in the sky and in the dream. There's a distinction made between Joseph and his brothers. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Because maybe Jacob is starting to see the same story play out that played out in his own childhood. And maybe his creativity is peaked and he's like, what, what, what could this mean? A younger brother with a big dream about his place in the story would have felt incredibly familiar to Jacob. Did you hear that? Because it feels like Jacob's story all over again. Let's look at what happens. Look at verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, notice the name change there. That's Jacob, Israel, Jacob, new name, Israel. Said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. Is this a good idea for Jacob? Like Jacob knows that the brothers hate Joseph. And this is a little ways away. I just want to, yeah, just go see how they're doing. Come back and report to me. After you've already given them a bad report and they hate you. Is this good parenting? Is this wise on Jacob's part? When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But when they saw him in the distance... And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Do you wonder how toxic your jealousy can be? Do do you wonder how, like, letting a seed of bitterness grow up, what it can grow up into? It can grow up into this. My bitterness can grow up into this, and so can yours. 
my jealousy, my comparing, my defensiveness, my stuff can grow up into this. Can yours? He finds them and he's planning to do what his father says. They have a different plan. They dream of a world without Joseph in it. If we could just get rid of this favorite son, like our dad's going to love us. Can you hear this? Because the parallel to us is if I could just get rid of anything, fill in the blank with your anything. If I could just get rid of that person, it'd be okay. If I could just get rid of that situation, it'd be fine. If I could just get rid of that, then it would be okay. I'm going to spoil it again because it's not going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. You could remove all the problems from your life. You could squash each one. You could blink them out of existence. And the problem's still going to be there because the problem is in here. Because wherever you go and whatever you can get for yourself and whatever you can convince anyone else of, you're still there. And until that thing comes out of the dark and gets brought into the light, it can grow up into this. Look at what they say in verse 19. Here comes that dreamer. They don't say, here comes Joseph. They don't name him. Here comes our brother. Here comes our father's son. Here comes that dreamer. Naming is so important in the Bible. Remember, remember that Adam couldn't say Eve's name when God confronts him in the garden? How Adam is bold enough and in his cowardice to say, that woman who you gave to be with me. How Cain cannot name Abel. I'm not my brother's keeper. They cannot even say his name. He is named that dreamer. You can hear him almost spit the words out as they dream to scheme to get rid of him. In verse 20, they say, come now, let's kill him. And let's throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. We'll see. What, what, what an ironic I mean, those of you who know the story and know where this is going, because the dream will come true and saving will happen. This, this, this statement, come, let's see what becomes of his dreams. You're going to see. They're going to see what becomes of his dreams. So will we. Here's a, here's a test question. And I love questions like this. A lot of people think they're meaningless. I love questions like this. If they don't throw him in a well, how does the, re- does the rest of the story happen? Like, let's just, let's play this out for a second. Let's go back in time and let's play out what happens if they don't throw him in the well. If they don't throw him in the well and they take him back, the family drama will continue. You're not going to change any of that. You're not going to change the hate. You're not going to change the jealousy. That's, none of that's going to change. But do you know what's going to change? The rescue at the end of the story cannot happen. It it can't happen in this story without Joseph in the bottom of a well. And this is what I mean by that. This is not like, hey, they did a good thing. (laughs) If that's what you're getting, that's not what I'm putting down. Like, (laughs) if 
that's the thing that's being received. We've got a problem in the connection, you know? Because it's not that what they did was a good thing. Here's the thing. They set an incredible series of fortunate events in motion that ends in the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. That God will use their hate and their jealousy to rescue them. Can you hear what I just said? God will use all the dark things in the brothers to ultimately rescue them. There's a parallel like screaming at you right now. Like, because God will use all of your darkest things, all of your jealousy, all of your sin, all of your hatred and brokenness, all the things that, are, that you want to just get rid of, just wink out of existence. I dream of genie, right? I don't know where that one came from. Like, just blink them out. That's, those things are actually going to be the thing that gets your attention. That those are actually going to be the things that lead to your rescue. It's incredible. Look at verse 21. We're, we're almost there. When Reuben heard this, he, cried, he tried to rescue them, rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life. He said, don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here. In the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. I'm glad that the writer added that about his motive. Because it kind of just seems like, ah, we'll just throw him in there. He's going to die if you just throw him in there and leave him. But the writer tells that he wants to save him. Who's Reuben? Reuben's the firstborn son. What does this mean in the story? It means that Reuben isn't as threatened by Joseph's life and by the favoritism shown to him because he's the firstborn son, right? It's no mistake that it's Reuben who says, let's not kill him. We hate him, but let's not kill him. It's going to be all right. I'm the firstborn son. It's going to be okay. Who steps in for Joseph is directly related to their birth order, which is crazy. There isn't even unity in the brothers and their hatred. So when Joseph came to his brothers in verse 23, they stripped him of his robe, that robe, the ornate robe that he was wearing. By the way, is it a smart idea for Joseph to just be walking around the wilderness in this robe? You know? No. <laughs> Not a good idea at all. But he's 17. He doesn't care. He's got dreams, man. They strip it off of him. The ornate robe that he was wearing, the favorite, the symbol of favoritism. And they took him and they threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Good thing. Because there's no way out. The robe was a symbol. A symbol of their preferential love of their father. A symbol that they were not enough. A symbol that they weren't loved by their father. Remember who their father is? Who's their daddy? Who's yours? This is what happens when you cannot experience love and grace and acceptance. This is what happens... When your jealousy grows up, you hurt things, you kill things, you abuse things. It's like the situation that won't allow Joseph to be killed. Reuben, the empty well, how often are cisterns empty? How often do firstborn older brothers stand up for the second youngest? It's almost like you can't kill the dreamer in this story, even if you try. As they sat down to eat their meal in verse 25, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Who are Ishmaelites? Who do they come from? Ishmael? Who's Ishmael? 
I mean, think about it. Think about, so all these brothers of favoritism, their grandfather had two sons. One was Isaac and one was Ishmael. And that's where the Ishmaelites come from. And what was his story? He was exiled. You couldn't make this up, you know? You couldn't make it up. That the, the kids of the kids of the kids of the exiled one come upon, just happen to come on these brothers, arguing about whether or not to kill one of the brothers. Judah said to his brothers, Judah, another favorite, another son of Leah, what will we gain if we kill our brother and we cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and lay not our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. So why don't we make money off of him? Let's sell him. Forget about killing him. Let's make some money. There are three camps. The brothers who want to kill Joseph, Reuben who wants to take him back to Jacob, and Judah who wants to profit from getting rid of him. After all, I mean, do you hear the irony? After all, he is our brother. Our own flesh and blood. I mean, the least we could do is sell him into slavery, guys. I mean, the, abs- like, the absolute least we could do. Let's do it. Let's sell him to our distant cousins who are descendants of the exiled son. Just to blow the story wide open, you know? Just to make it so that when people are reading this story thousands of years from now, they couldn't possibly not get it. Are we getting it? One little tidbit here. Judah is the great, 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 great grandfather. That's probably not the right number of greats. Of Jesus. So if Judah doesn't step up, if Judah lets the murder happen, there's no Jesus. I should just end there. I'm not going to. But like, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Look at verse 28. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites. The writer really wants you to know they're Ishmaelites. Like, he keeps talking about it. Because he wants you to know. Who took him to Egypt. Egypt. Where's Egypt? Egypt isn't home, right? Egypt isn't the promised land. We got rid of him. We got rid of the dream. Like he's gone. Not only is he gone, he's gone into the empire. The most powerful country on the planet at this time. He's gone, gone. Outside of the promised land. What happens when the dream and the dreamer aren't where they're supposed to be? What happens when the dreamer is exiled? It's going to hang over the text. When Reuben turned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. And he went back to his brothers and he said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? They did a little like switcheroo while Reuben was off doing something, right? He wasn't down with selling Joseph apparently. He doesn't see the teenager in the well, cannot take him back. Verse 31, then they got Joseph's robe, the robe that is the symbol of the preferential love of their father. They slaughtered a goat. They sacrificed a goat to their hatred. Do you see what they're doing? I mean, sacrificing a goat is worship in the ancient world. They sacrifice, they slaughter a goat and they dip the robe in blood and they took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see if it's your son's robe. 
The robe that was a symbol of extreme love of a father, even preferential. That became a symbol of deep hatred. Now is a symbol of a dark deception. I want you to really experience their hard, ugly, malignant hearts. The coldness. Look, listen to their words. We found this. Like literally what a three-year-old says when they find like your broken knickknack. You know what I'm saying? I found this. Anyone ever had that happen? Like, you know, you have a kid that breaks something. I'm just, maybe I'm just, this is autobiographical. <laughs> you, know, you break something, you bring it to mom and dad. You say, I found this. What do you mean you found it? I found it. We found this. Examine it to see if it's whose robe. Not Joseph. They can't name Joseph, remember? Not our brother, because they hate him. Your son. See if it's your son's robe. Incredible. Now, Jacob was born, it's kind of like that thing where you say, I was born at night, but not last night. You know? Jacob was involved in a deception of his own that involved a tactile thing. Jacob dressed up with like goat skins and went to his father and had his father touch him and like put the smell of his Esau, his brother, on him so that he could fool his father. Do you think Jacob is fooled here? It's up for debate. It's been literally debated for thousands of years. And we're going to see as the story develops that maybe, maybe just, maybe he does smell something fishy. That's not the blood. He recognized in verse 33 and he said, it's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph surely has been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and mourned for many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father met, wept, wept for him. Turns out that Jacob's favoritism continues even in his grief. That he can't be comforted by all those in second place in his heart. Think about what he's saying here. I'm going to mourn until I die. When you lose a good thing, you can be devastated. You can be sad. You can be depressed. But when you lose an idol, you come completely undone and you despair. That's where Jacob's at. Idolizing his second to youngest son of his old age, spawning, growing this family up in favoritism and partiality. This is where they're at. And then in chapter 37, we have just like a little wink at the end. Look at verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites, this is our last verse for today, sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. We leave Genesis 37 with the dreamer in exile, the family of mess. The dreamer somehow found himself in a powerful house in Egypt, in the empire. What hope could there possibly be in this story? Joseph and his dreamer are in the hands of the empire, and Jacob's going to mourn till he dies, right? What good could possibly come out of this story? I'm going to be a little coy and let you hang with it, right? But what about you? Where are your dreams? 
the dream of significance, the dream that you mean something, the dream that you have a part and a place to play in the story of love and grace. Joseph's family thinks they can say what the dream means. They think they can kill the dream. But Joseph's gonna keep dreaming. And we're gonna see where the dream leads him. No one, not one person at the beginning of our tale could dream up what would happen by the end. And as we end our time together in God's word, I wanna ask you, where are you in this story? Are you Joseph? We all are, by the way. Are you the brothers drowning in cynical, jealous thoughts ruining your life? <laughs> A little dark. But can you identify with the brothers? Are you Jacob? Who are you and where are you going? All right, let's pray. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes. I know this was a lot. I want you to think for just a second about that dream that we started with. The dream that God has for your life, for your relationships. And I just want you to respond to the dream. Just take a couple minutes and respond to it. Joseph's along for the ride. His brothers hate the dream. His dad stews over it and isn't sure what's going to come of it. Where are you at with your dream? If you identify with the jealousy and the hatred of the brothers, who's your father? How does that change things? Father, thank you for today. Thank you for my friends and for your word and how it challenges us. And I, I mean, we read a story like this and we couldn't imagine something more relevant to our own hatred, our own jealousy, our own defensiveness, our own brokenness. God, I pray for this text that it would get up underneath all the, all the excuses that I make. God, that you would really bring your healing. Bring healing to our hearts. Bring vision to our eyes that we could see the dream for our life that you have. That nothing can kill it that even when it's in the bottom of a well with no way out, there's a way out. That even when we feel like others might wanna kill it, it can't be killed. That even when we're in exile and we're far away from home, we're not far away. So God, would you please restore to us a vision of the dreams that you have for our life and our work and our relationships. God, thank you again for this text and thank you for your grace. It makes all things new. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Next week, our story takes a hard left turn. Almost, we're almost gonna go off the road. Um, but it's a really interesting one. So come on back next week. We'll see you next time.